Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. For a moment, attempt to forget everything that you know and take for granted about modern life. I know this is hard, but that's why I've asked in earlier episodes, start trying to bring your imagination to the table when we start looking at some things. So try to at least imagine. No airplanes, no cars, no trucks, no railroads, no motors of any kind. No technology like computers or smartphones. No electricity, air conditioning, refrigeration. Everything that needed accomplish required animal or human muscle and ingenuity to harvest the power of the wind and water to move on rivers, lakes, and seas. And you either moved under the power of your own body or you utilized an animal to help get some work done. Plowing fields, moving products, pulling wagons. And this was the way it was for thousands of years. Even up to the point when Lewis and Clark set out on their expedition reading through Stephen Ambrose's book Undaunted Courage reminds me of this. This is the way things were and even at that time it seemed like that was the way it was going to remain. Now try to remember all that is ingrained into us and has been for thousands and thousands of years. There is the land that we live on, very important, yes. And more importantly, the water that gives us life and life to everything that grows upon the land and gives sustenance to everything that walks and flies and slithers and crawls. It is the waters that fall from the heavens to form snow and ice on mountaintops that feed vast rivers and the rains far from the mountains that create other rivers and other tributaries, smaller rivers and creeks that all flow across the landscape and give shape to the land, flowing into the vast and beautiful, deep and deadly seas and oceans that crash their waves upon the coasts of the land all across our planet. There are the waters in the vast natural lakes and the waters in the ground itself. Vast aquifers that flow up from the earth in springs, once more common than now. And springs that would be centers of life for creatures and settlement for humanity. For eternity, these things are what mattered. For they were what life was about. The land and waters grew the plants that fed us and fed the creatures that we hunted. 
These things provided shelter and sustenance for us and the other things that truly mattered. Our loved ones, family, and friends, our tribe. Across the centuries, groups of people created bonds of shared identity, tied to the waters and lands that gave them life. In some places, great civilizations, kingdoms, and cultures grew with developments in knowledge, science, art, religion, philosophy, and government, trade and economies. New things began to be added to the list of things we considered most important. Across the world, over thousands of years, these cultures and civilizations rose and fell or simply merged and became new things with new ideas, new philosophies, new religions, new concerns, the desire for control over resources became even more important and the desire for authority and power developed differently and took different forms around the world. And for Pretty much all of history, war, and diplomacy, the result of these desires, became one of the central parts of existence and fills volumes of history books. Humanity advanced from the time of stone tools three million years ago or so to the development of writing systems 5,000 years ago. We lived through many eras that have been assigned by us in retrospect various names. The Paleolithic or Stone Age, the Mesolithic, and the Neolithic of about 12,000 years ago. Then we went through the Copper Age that led to the Bronze Age and then the Iron Age. And then we get to the era known to many as classical antiquity of the Greeks and the Romans in the Mediterranean. There's the post-classical period with highlights in Han China, the Western Roman Empire, the Gupta Empire, and the Sasanian Empire of the Iranians. After the fall of Rome, we entered what we call the Middle Ages, which ended with a period that these next lessons will focus on, when the modern age began about 1500 A.D. with the end of the Reconquista and the rediscovery of the Americas in 1492, just under 500 years after the Vikings under Leif Erikson had first briefly attempted settlement. All around the world, over these thousands of years, our ancestors went through many changes and adaptations of how to live and structure their societies. In Africa, civilizations rose and fell in the land of Punt, Carthage, Nubia, Axum, Ethiopia, Macrobia on the African Horn, the Nok culture of Nigeria, the Jenny, and of course the land of Egypt. In Asia, the civilizations and cultures of Mesopotamia, Babylon, Sumer, Akkad, Assyria, Persia, again the Gupta Empire in India, the Indus Valley Civilization, 
the Mahajanapadas, the Medes, the nation of Israel, the Hittites. There are too many to recount. And then in China, along the Yellow River Valley, emerged the Longshan and Yangshao cultures, the Shang Dynasty, the Zhao Dynasty, the Han Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty. There are also the cultures and civilizations of Mongolia, the three kingdoms of Korea, Vietnam, Japan. Thousands and thousands of lives taking very different paths all around the world based on location, tradition, and resources. In the Americas, separated from the rest of the world by the two mighty oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, developed the Norte Chico civilization, followed by the Inca of South America, the Olmecs and Mayans of Central America, the Isapa civilization, the Teotihuacans, the Zapotecs, Mixtecs, and Huaytecs, and finally the Mexica created what we call the Aztec Empire while the Spaniards were fighting their Reconquista. And let's not forget the people we've talked about in earlier lessons here in Texas. The Humanos, Coetacons, Caroncoas, the Caddos, Atacapans, and many more bands of people that we don't know the names of. And yes, in North America, a very successful culture rose at Poverty Point in modern Louisiana. The Hopewell culture thrived in the southeastern woodlands, building massive earthworks. Mississippian culture developed and reached its height with the vast city of Cahokia. About the time that Leif Erikson brought his Vikings over to the far northeast. The Mogollon culture of the southwest and the Hohokam, masters of the desert. There were the ancestral Pueblo. Cultures developed on the Pacific coast and the Great Plains. Together, all of these people across the world lived and died and led to the world that existed on the cusp of the peoples of the Americas finally being brought into contact with the rest of the world. But I left something out there, didn't I? And that, of course, leads us to the civilizations and cultures of Europe. How can we forget the mighty Europeans? Best not. Because they will be central to this story from here on. In Europe, there were civilizations, the Etruscans, the Greeks, the Romans, empire builders and warriors and philosophers. Also, we must recall the Anglo-Saxons, the Celts, the Vikings, the Frisians and Franks, the Goths, Ostrogoths, Visigoths. And the point of all of this leads us to also remembering the peoples that lived on the Iberian Peninsula. If you don't know where the Iberian Peninsula is, pull out your trusty map and look at Spain and Portugal. That's the Iberian Peninsula. Now, modern Spain is often talked about as being different from the other modern countries of Europe, and that difference that people speak of is usually not used as a compliment. But it is true that Spain is different. Spain is different, and much of the cause for that difference from other European countries is found in its history. 
In historical times and in the present, Spain has had a diverse population with close contacts to civilizations beyond Europe. Peoples from different cultures crossed paths and often stayed and melded together to become the Iberians. Much like the way I described Texas in some of the very earlier lessons, Spain, geographically, is a crossroads between the Atlantic and Mediterranean and between Europe and Africa. From prehistoric times to medieval times, this position in the world made it a place of continual contact and potential conflict with other countries and civilizations, as William Phillips and Carl Ron Phillips explain in their book, A Concise History of Spain. So at the time that we're approaching here, when the modern age was born in about 1500, give or take a few years, at the time that the New World and Old World exchange began, things were very different. That's almost an understatement of the fact because the exchange between them was a revolution of such a grand scale that it had impacts all over the planet. But to begin simply, let's state that Spain did not exist as we now know it. In fact, for the places we call France, England, Spain, and Germany, for starters, the actual circumstances were far different. It was, to put it simply, and this is not an overstatement, a different world. There were 1,500 independent political entities compared to the 20 or so we now recognize as European nation-states. The nation-state, as we now know it, did not begin coming into existence really until the late 1700s. But the European invasion and discovery of the Americas coincided with and funded the developments that led to the nation-state. What Spain is at that time was divided into the kingdoms of Castile and Leon, Aragon, Galicia, Asturias, and Granada, Going back even more, Spain at one time was broken into the kingdoms of Asturias, Galicia, Leon, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, and the Principality of Valencia. Leon and Castile merged in the 11th and 12th centuries, and there was also the Kingdom of Mercia, the Kingdoms of Cordova, Portugal itself was on the Iberian Peninsula, and it came into existence as an entity during the Reconquista as its leaders and the Spanish kingdoms began to take shape from the many Spanish states. And in, it was after the discovery of America in 1516 when the kingdoms of Spain would be unified under Habsburg rule, bringing Castile, Aragon, and the smaller kingdoms together as a nation Germany, in the early 1500s by comparison, was divided politically and religiously into a number of states. And they would not get together for a long time to become modern Germany. The states that became Great Britain, England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, were at odds in going through developments of their own. Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and France, and other nations were all going through their own developmental period during the time that the states of Spain and Portugal were developing. 
but before we get to the events of 1492 and after, in typical Texas History Lessons fashion, let's slow down and jump back in time even more. I gave this lesson the title of History of the World in just a few minutes, knowing that I would not do a complete justice to the task, and because I love a good challenge. There are many people that could do a better job, but one of the reasons I decided on this approach long ago, when I've been thinking about this over months and months, is because I want to broaden the perspective through which we look at Texas history and at this period itself. We're not the culmination of all of these events. We're not the high point, is what I'm trying to say. We're not the be-all and end-all, where everything was leading. Yes, we're here. We are a step in the future's development. We are living in future generations' history. And they will be looking back at us, much the same way we are looking at these events today. And we need to keep in mind the concept of deep history as well. Recall that I made a big deal of the three things in Lesson 15 when I was beginning to look at the heritage of Spain and the power of ideas. We looked at the beginning of the Judaic faith, the Christian faith, and the Islamic faith. And all three are tied together in history, and they play a role in the story of Spain. And as a result of playing a role in that story, it's a foundational part of understanding the history of the Americas and Texas. Well, here is where all that starts to make even more sense. So thank you for your patience. I don't call it a slow walk through Texas history for nothing. After Alexander and Greece attempted to build their vast empire, of course came the famed Roman Republic and Roman Empire. Greece had ruled the Iberian Peninsula, and later the Romans incorporated it into their empire. Think of the movie The Gladiator. That's where Russell Crowe's character was from, after all, wasn't it? Rome contributed many things to the Spaniards. Their language, law, customs, religious faith, and the name Hispania. Now, it was during the occupation of Palestine by the Romans that the story of the Jews that came to live in the Iberian Peninsula begins. A few years before 70 AD, the Jews of Palestine were debating over the proper way to practice their religion. There was also the followers of Jesus seeking to reform Judaism and have him acknowledged as the Messiah. Now, in a couple of hundred years, this Jewish sect would become the official religion of the Roman Empire and, in time, the religion of Spain, for the most part. There were also the Zealots, who wanted the Romans out altogether. Rome sent in its legions, burned Jerusalem, and destroyed the Second Temple. After that, Judaism developed synagogue worship with an emphasis on prayer and the law, with rabbis leading the study of Scripture to explain how Jews should live in a world surrounded by Gentiles. Now, many Jews left Palestine fled Palestine, I should say, during the time of destruction and troubles, and they found new homes in North Africa, Rome itself, and on the Iberian Peninsula. The Jews of Spain, Sephardic Jews, you'll see them called, they thrived there. All across the empire they thrived, becoming involved in the massive trade networks that reached from Spain to all of the empire. 
They lived freely and prospered in most of the large cities of the Roman Empire, including on the Iberian Peninsula. I am explaining this quickly and simply, so I apologize if I miss some significant points. The goal is to reach the creation of the Spanish nation, and that is the story of the Christians, Muslims, and Jews of Iberia. The Emperor Constantine, born a pagan, converted to Christianity in 312 AD and enacted policies that made life more tolerable for Christians. And the conversion of the Roman Empire into a Christian state took much longer than that. But over time, the faith did spread and is now the largest religion in the world. In Spain, Christianity would become deeply ingrained into the identity of the rulers, explorers, and conquerors that built the Spanish Empire. But again, it took a long time to happen. A little under 200 years later, the 1,200-year Roman domination of Western Europe came to an end. The Visigoths first sacked Rome in 410 AD, and in 476, Odoacer, I hope I'm saying that correctly, a Germanic leader, organized the, and set up the abdication of Romulus Augustus, the last Western Roman emperor. The Eastern Roman Empire... Byzantium Empire, centered at Constantinople, would continue on until 1453. The fall of Rome led to the emergence of the church under the popes as a dominant authority and the development of feudal society. In Spain, things did go a bit different in terms of feudalism than it did in the rest of Western Europe. And we'll get to the reasons for that in just a moment. So the fall of Rome. The fall of Rome is a very important part of the story we are investigating. Walter Scheidel, a professor at Stanford University, wrote a really interesting article on the subject. And I want to draw a few things from it and some of his conclusions. The collapse of Rome removed the plutocratic ruling class and freed the masses of people that actually did the work to support the empire from what Scheidel calls oppressive exploitation. The new Germanic rulers required less and were far less adept at collecting rents and taxes. And Scheidel wrote, quote, When Goths, Vandals, Franks, Lombards, and Anglo-Saxons carved up the empire, they broke the imperial order so thoroughly that it never returned. Before long, nobles and warriors made themselves at home on lands whose yield kings had assigned them. Europe became divided in a patchwork quilt of states that were themselves broken up into duchies, counties, bishoprics, and cities where nobles, warriors, clergy, and traders vied for influence and resources. People gained power over their lives in much of Europe, establishing commercial cities with guilds to govern their conduct. Universities were organized to become self-governing groups of scholars. And warfare became costlier and became a defining feature of early modern Europe. Europe was deeply fragmented, which was the point I was making earlier about how many different states existed at the time 
that we're talking about. Over a very long period of time, these European states would slowly develop into the nation states that we know today. Scheidel concludes, quote, that disunion, competition, and conflict were the principal selection pressures that shaped the evolution of states, societies, and frames of mind. That it was endless war, racist colonialism, crony capitalism, and raw intellectual ambition that fostered modern development rather than peace and harmony. Progress was born in a crucible of competitive fragmentation. The price was high, bled dry by war, and ripped off by protectionist policies. It took a long time, even for Europeans, to reap tangible benefits. Furthermore, Scheidel wrote that the benefits of modernity were disseminated around the world painfully, unevenly, yet inexorably. Global life expectancy at birth has more than doubled. Average per capita output has grown by a factor of 15. Illiteracy and poverty, while still present, are in retreat. Political rights have spread across the world. Our understanding of nature and our physical world is continually improving. Had Rome not fallen and Europe not fallen into numerous competitive states, these changes to the world might indeed have taken much longer. Again, this is a very interesting article, and I'm sharing these thoughts because I, it's, they're thought-provoking. And I want to finish with one more quote from the very interesting article by Shadell. Long before our species existed, we caught a lucky break. If an asteroid hadn't knocked out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, our tiny rodent-like ancestors We've had had a hard time evolving into Homo sapiens. But even once we got that far, our big brains weren't quite enough to break out of our ancestral way of life, growing, herding, and hunting food amid endemic poverty, illiteracy, incurable disease, and premature death. It took a second lucky break to escape from all that, a booster shot that arrived a little more than 1,500 years ago, the fall of ancient Rome. Just as the world's erstwhile apex predators had to bow out to clear the way for us, so the mightiest empire Europe had ever seen had to crash to open up a path to prosperity. And I think that pretty much sets the stage for where we're heading in this lesson, the emergence of the state that would become modern Spain. From all these thousands of states that Europe was broken into, and they would then create the largest world empire after Rome. In Spain, many of these factors did exist, but Spain had a bit of a different route, like I said, because of the conquering invasion of the Moors in 711 AD. About 300 years after Constantine became a Christian and about 150 years after Rome fell, going back to the lesson on the power of ideas, Muhammad received his vision, and Islam was born in 610 AD, and a new empire was born as well. But we'll return to that in just a minute, because while his idea, his faith, and the empire that came out of his ideas began to spread, the Visigoths swept around the peninsula in the 5th century and imposed their way of life on its inhabitants. 
as Calvert and De Leon state in their History of Texas, aptly titled The History of Texas. It's a great book. Like other Europeans, the Iberians then began forging new lifeways that combined the Roman influence, the newer Germanic contributions, and evolving Christian beliefs. For in Spain, as elsewhere, the Visigoths ended up assimilating the religion, language, and form of government of the people they had conquered. So, the Visigoths are ruling the Iberian Peninsula after the fall of Rome. For the Germanic tribes, the conversion of the king did mean that everyone would convert and identify as Christians. And this is what happened in Spain in the late 6th century. The Visigoth rulers of Iberia became Christians and Catholic leaders gained significant influence over the kingdom. This led to an escalation of animosity against the Jews that were still there in Spain thriving. Well, this led to animosity and persecution of them. The new emerging identity was that it was a Christian kingdom, and that meant that non-Christians did not fit into the picture. This idea that combined church and state in one kingdom. Things kept looking worse and worse for the Jews of Spain. In 613, a Visigoth king decreed that Jews had to be baptized or leave. By the end of the 600s, it looked like the Jews were on the verge of being forcibly expelled from the Visigothic kingdom. And while things did not look so good for quite a while, we know, blessed with historical hindsight, that a few years before the 613 decree, a man named Muhammad received a vision in Islam would quickly grow into a world-changing force. And yes, it was the Muslims who would save the Jews of Spain from persecution. This occurred when the Moors crossed from North Africa in 711. And it's, I know it's hard to understand this considering recent history and current history, but this is what happened. Now you can see, or start to see at least, why I started one of the more recent lessons with the births of the religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They all came together to have an important role in the shaping of early Spain. Many people, not just the followers of the Jewish faith, had problems with the Visigothic rulers. And when the Muslims approached with promises of Christians and Jews being allowed to practice their faiths in peace, many disgruntled Iberians welcomed the invaders as they overthrew the Visigoths. The Moors called the newly conquered land of Hispania Al-Andalus, and all three peoples flourished for quite a while. Al-Andalus became a center of learning, and Cordoba and Toledo became intellectual capitals where many fields of knowledge flourished. Science, medicine, philosophy, and more prospered. During the years of Muslim domination, Spain benefited from their connections with the Islamic world, and the people of Spain conducted brisk economic trading and activity. The Muslims had very good connections between merchants along wide-ranging trade routes. Their empire was vast, just like the Romans had been. Many Spanish cities would become important centers for commerce with strong ties with other centers in Africa, several Mediterranean countries, and as far as the Muslim world of the Middle East. And the Iberians who survived 
by growing produce and raising stock also benefited from these years, since they were able to sell not only to domestic markets, but were also able to export their products. Now that's a lot to take in. I, I get it. So we're going to continue on in the next lesson, but we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we will have a few words about key takeaways from this lesson and what to expect coming up in the near future. So what are the big takeaway ideas from this lesson? Spain, uh, for one, as we know it, was shaped over centuries by many peoples and cultures, the Greeks, Romans, the Sephardic Jews, who had fled Palestine, Mediterranean traders, the peoples of North Africa, the Visigothic kings who took over after the Romans, and as we will learn in the next lesson, the Moorish invaders who conquered the Iberian Peninsula in 711. Another thing to think about is that these events that we're looking at in this lesson set the stage for the emergence of a Spanish nation from the eventual merger of many Iberian Christian states as they pushed back the Moors and pushed them off of the peninsula over hundreds of years. Another item to consider, these years were the foundation for the Age of Discovery that led to the discovery of America and the beginning of the modern age. Also, anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust in the 1940s in Germany had very deep roots that weren't isolated to Germany. They were present in this land as well. And we'll be seeing more examples of it in the next lesson. And this was just little more than a brief glimpse into a really fascinating time period. I try to do the history of the world in just a few minutes, leading up to a focus on Spain. I know, I know I missed a lot of awesome things. And it really is compelling and fascinating to look into. So that's one of the things I want you to take away. Go read for yourself some of these events and look into it if you find it at all interesting. Go learn more on your own. That's one of the things I always encourage you to do. Don't trust me. You have no reason to trust me other than I promise I'm trying to do my best to be faithful and true to the best scholarship that I can gather. Do the work yourself. It's fun. You'll find some enjoyment because you'll be surprised at some of the things you learn and uncover over through your own reading. Moving on. In the next lesson, we will learn more about the centuries of Moorish dominance in Iberia. We'll learn about the Crusades and the Reconquista. We'll learn about the marriage of Isabella and Ferdinand, which led to the union of the two strongest Spanish states, Castile and Aragon. And then we'll start looking into Columbus and the establishment of the Spanish Empire after he made his voyage in 1492. 
So thanks for listening. Thanks to the great Derek McClendon for the really amazing intro walking through history that he's contributed to the show. I'm forever in his debt. Go check out his music. If you happen to see him on tour, tell him we said hi. Thanks to everyone that helped support the show through giving through Patreon or just clicking the link and buying me a cup of coffee or buy me a book as I have it set up on the site. It's appreciated, folks. Thank you. And some people have been very generous and kind and sent some nice messages along with their donations, and it, it, it really means a lot. Remember to check out the Wild West Extravaganza podcast and the History Cafe podcast for their fun and interesting stories that they share. Uh, remember to listen to Texas River Tonk, Off Mic, Off Record, and Hymns of the Highway for great Texas music. And lately, I've discovered two great podcasts that I want to recommend. First one I want to talk about is Tales from Atlantis, A-Z-T-L-A-N-T-I-S. The hosts, Curly and Ruben, are some serious, serious scholars. But they don't always take themselves too seriously, so it's a fun listen. And their summary of what the show is about is, they say, join us every week as we explore Mesoamerican pseudo-history, New Age nonsense, archaeological misconceptions, and other tales of adventure. In each episode, they investigate how these very topics have helped inform Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx identity and have resulted in a distorted view of our collective indigenous past. The hosts, again, are Curly Tlapoyawa, and Ruben Ariano Tacolecto. I apologize if I said those wrong. That's one of the things I've, I'm learning from listening to the show. I'm getting a little bit better in pronouncing some things that I'm, my mouth doesn't seem to know how to shape. But in addition to the things, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Chicano. I'm not invested in that identity. But I'm learning so much from the history and from them going through and sharing information that I would not have been privy to had they not been sharing this podcast. It's fascinating, fascinating. Every one I've listened to keeps me on edge of my seat because I never know what I'm about to learn. And learning for me is fun. And that's It helps drive me to continue doing this podcast as I keep learning things. I want to share them. So thanks to them for doing a great, great show. And the other podcast that's a surprise I never heard of it because it claims to be, and I think it has good reason to say it, it's the longest running podcast that there is from what I can tell. And they call themselves the first podcast. I think that's a little bit debatable from some of the reading I've done, but they are the open source podcast with Christopher Lydon. Now, I really regret not finding this because it really is a great podcast. The host has conversations on arts, ideas, and politics, things that I'm very interested in, and just shows 
so many different places to learn new things. Great conversations about really interesting topics. Everything from a recent book called The Dawn of Everything that I'm eager to read based on the talks with different people. It has a lot to do with indigenous peoples as well. It's a topic that I think is very important and that we need to pay attention to because I think we can learn a lot from that. There's also information about the recent events in Ukraine at the time of recording. And there's a great episode on Casablanca, one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of all time, about the creation of that. He's one of those guys that seems comfortable talking with anybody from just about every avenue. So check that show out as well. I don't think it needs that much support because it's been around for so long. And thanks again for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We almost hit a really large milestone. Miss it by a couple of dozen uh, last month. Numbers aren't important, but it's nice to know that people are catching on and listening and sharing the show. So the best thing you can do for the show is share it with other people. Looking forward to getting into the next few episodes. It's going to be great. A lot of fun. I've been working on this for over a year. Finally getting to releasing the stuff that I've really been doing lots of reading and research on. But one final thing I want to say. I'm dedicating this show to a good man named Jim Gafkin, who I learned died last night. Jim was in his 90s, and I've known him since I was a young teenager, and he has always been a positive influence on my life. He encouraged me to follow my passion for history because he shared that. You know, he had a rough life. He was an orphan from West Virginia, joined the Marines at a very young age, fought in Korea, and then, you know, had a successful life. And somehow I was fortunate enough that he became my neighbor at one point. And like I said, he'd always share books. He had an amazing collection of muskets and old firearms that he would show me and talk to me about and explain to me. And he encouraged me to keep with my love of history. And in honor of him, I'm going to keep doing that being truthful and sharing things that I love like he would with me. So we're going to end the show with a song by the great and gracious Seth Jones. It's going to be as it changes and we'll be talking with him in the near future. I hope he's a, he's an interesting gentleman. And so here it is. As it changes, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Be kind Adios. Work that hammer down to the hip. Ain't no tombstone big enough for all this guilt. Got a hole dug in the ground. Way too deep Because I ain't half the man That I know I should be 
This world has a method of changing your way Making you say what you don't want to say And do all the things you swore you were not And this change takes hold when you start to go numb Negotiate a finger but it takes your thumb And now you wake up somebody else is there Changes must be made